Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode 45. In this episode, we will be hearing from Joel Griffin as he continues his study with us on the book of Ruth. The title of his message is Enjoying God's Favor. We plan to post Joel's remaining sessions on Ruth later this week. Well, if in Ruth chapter 1, we thought a lot about Naomi, in Ruth chapter 2, we will think about Ruth herself. We're going to think about who she is. And the question here in Ruth chapter 2, right in the text of the chapter in verse number 5, is this, whose young woman is this? And so we're going to think about who Ruth is. And as we think about who Ruth is, and we see the way that Boaz treats her in the narrative here, we have a beautiful illustration of the grace of God. And we see that God's redemption is profoundly gracious. And the goal is to, by the end of this message, just to be sitting and appreciating and rejoicing and worshiping God for his graciousness to us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Our salvation is not something that we deserve, but it is something that is sure. And we can rest securely in our salvation that we have received by the grace of God because of the payment made by Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible is amazing. The Bible is amazing because it's a supernatural book. While there are 40 authors approximately, normal human people that were helped by the Spirit of God to, to write the Scriptures, over 1,600 years, we see that it wasn't just 40 people over 1,600 years. We see also that the Bible is a masterpiece of God. There's one author behind the Scriptures. And there's one unified message, and that gets back to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so we love the Bible. As Christians, as believers, we love the Scriptures. Imagine what it would have been like to walk with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus along with the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine what that must have been like to hear the Lord Jesus beginning with Moses and all the prophets interpreting to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I often wonder what that must have been like. And we can look forward to our future in Christ when we will hear his expositions about himself in all of his word when we reach heaven. You know, I wonder that as the Lord Jesus Christ was going through the Hebrew Bible and he went through the three sections of the Hebrew Bible, you see the Hebrew Bible is split into three. There's the Torah, the law, and then there's the prophets, and then there's the writings. And as he came into the third section of the Hebrew Bible, as he went through the whole Old Testament expounding to those believers about himself, the second book in that third section of the Hebrew Bible would have been Ruth. And perhaps he would have opened up to them God's eternal plan of redemption through the book of Ruth. Redemption even reaching the nations, even the Moabites. 
the Messiah's salvation would not be limited to just the nation of Israel, but would go to all. And I love to think that the Lord Jesus, he paused on this book and he delved in to talk about the redemption that he was providing. Maybe he even linked in Isaiah 49 verse 6. It says, And now the Lord says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. The mission of the Messiah was not constricted to one people group. It overflows to all peoples. For God's love overflows to all peoples, and the work of Christ is sufficient to save all peoples. It's very interesting that the book of Ruth is traditionally read by the Jewish people at the Feast of Pentecost. And it's read in a liturgical fashion. And the reading of Ruth, even today, by Jewish people, it is in the celebration of Pentecost. They do various things uh, to celebrate Pentecost. They, they read special liturgical poems. Those are interactive poems of worship. They consume milk and cheese. They read the book of Ruth. They decorate their homes and synagogues with greenery. And they study the Torah all night long to celebrate the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. And traditionally, the rabbis teach that the Passover feast is historically linked with the exodus from Egypt. And we certainly see that in the Word of God. And they also teach that the Pentecost, that the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost is historically linked right back to the giving of the law. Now, we don't have that in the Bible, but traditionally speaking, this is the teaching of the rabbis, that Pentecost goes back historically to the giving of the law. Let's just assume that that tradition from the rabbis is true for a moment, and let's compare the giving of the law and the Pentecost there to the formation of the church and the arrival of the Holy Spirit and the celebration of Pentecost, as we find in Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament. Let's just compare and contrast for a minute. When the law was given, no one could approach the mountain where God was. If they did, they would lose their life. At that Pentecost, on that occasion, no getting close. Only Moses could go up. Now let's go to Pentecost in the New Testament, not the giving of the law, but the formation of the church and the arrival of the Holy Spirit and the start of a dispensation totally different. The dispensation of grace. God is coming down and he is dwelling with people like you and like me. He is dwelling within believers. And Christians, we as believers today, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and dwells within the local church. As we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Amazing the contrast there. When the law was given, 3,000 people died. Because when Moses comes down off the mountain, he encounters the golden calf episode, and there is chaos, and there is judgment. And three, about 3,000 men of the people died in Exodus chapter 32. Now let's compare now to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And when the Holy Spirit was given and the church was formed, there 
were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls receiving eternal life. So the Feast of Pentecost in the book of Acts is linked to a beautiful celebration of harvest. Not the harvest of wheat like we have in the book of Ruth, but the harvest of souls. The first fruits of the nations that would be saved. It's linked to the grace of God to redeem people from every people group. And as the apostles preach in languages they never learned to thousands of people from many nations, there is a mighty, there is a mighty celebration of harvest. So what does this have to do with the book of Ruth? Well, remember that the, that the events of the book of Ruth are about redemption, and they're about God's plan for the nations, and they take place between the Feast of First Fruits, right after Passover, and the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, at the end of the wheat harvest. Harvest. The harvest of souls from the nations. I'd just like to think with you about another general thing that we can appreciate about this harvest celebration and the grace of God. On that very day, the celebration of the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, the priests at the temple would have been doing a special offering as we learn in Leviticus 23. And one of those special offerings was to wave two loaves of bread in an act of worship and thanksgiving to God. Two special loaves of bread. They were called the bread of first fruits. And those two loaves of bread had a specific recipe. They were to be made with fine flour. We learn in Leviticus 23. God had stipulated all of these things. They were to be baked with leaven. Now, you know as well as I do perhaps that leaven was not supposed to be part of any of the offerings. All of the other offerings, leaven was not supposed to be involved. It was an image of impurity and of sin and of pride. But here, God is asking that leaven be put in these two loaves of bread. We should stop and say, what is going on? This was a... a a no-brainer for the people of Israel. Leaven never went near anything to do with the ceremonial law, except on this occasion. Why, I wonder, did God ask that leaven be put in these loaves at the Feast of Pentecost? Well, what happened in the formation of the church? Let's just think big picture here. In all of Scripture, we know that the formation of the church happened on Pentecost. Maybe there's a link. I'd like to suggest to you that in the formation of the church, as we learn in Ephesians chapter 2, that God was removing a wall of partition between Jewish people and the rest of the nations. So we see in this special offering of two loaves of bread, we see two things being brought together and being lifted up to God. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the church? We have Jewish people and we have Gentile people brought together in the church for God. No longer any division. We're people who have been saved. We were sinners. Impurity. And that leaven points to the fact that the church is comprised of imperfect people. But because of the work of Christ, sin no longer has any dominion over us. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. And the leaven in those loaves no longer had any power because those loaves of bread had been baked. The leaven was no longer having an effect. 
It was in the past. And so now as the church, as Jewish people, as Gentile people, we're brought together, we're lifted up to God, we are no longer under the dominion of sin. Amazing that the righteousness of Christ has been given to us as members of the church. And perhaps that's the fine flower that we see in these two in these two loaves of bread. And so while on the day of Pentecost, the priest in the temple belonging to the old system, he's bringing together these two special loaves of bread and he's holding them up to God and he's celebrating the wheat harvest. The Lord Jesus Christ is pouring out the Holy Spirit. He's forming the church and he is lifting as the great high priest. He's lifting up to God this beautiful, this beautiful thing, the church, Jewish people, Gentile people brought together and worship to God and sin has no more dominion over them. But it did before. But now they have been ransomed by the blood of Christ. And so we have some background now based on Leviticus 23 and the history of, of Pentecost that remind us of the grace of God in redemption, even woven into these feasts. Now I'd like to look at Ruth chapter 2 together and see more as we look at Ruth's identity and we see the events in Ruth chapter 2. Let's see more together about the favor of God. The favor of God in redemption. Let's read together starting in Ruth chapter 2 verse number 1. And you'll notice favor popping up in the chapter. Let's read together. Ruth chapter 2 verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went, and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Verse 5, Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers. So the big question of the chapter, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. And she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. That is favor again in that verse. Verse 14. In that mealtime, Boaz said to her, 
Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Let's skip down to verse 23. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So we see in verse 2, favor. We see again in verse 10, favor shown toward Ruth. And again in verse number 13, so much kindness, so much grace, unmerited favor is being poured out on Ruth. And she just is so astonished at this graciousness to her by this man Boaz. And in this, we have a beautiful picture of the incredible kindness and goodness of God to us in our salvation. Above and beyond anything that we could have ever imagined, we now have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are like Ruth, unworthy. We are like Ruth, who are far, far, far from God. From the nations, we have been brought into God's salvation by the grace of God. As we think about Ruth, let's think about a few things together. Her origin, her attitude, also Ruth's worth, and Ruth's place of refuge. Let's just look at these together. Ruth's origin. I believe it's five times in this book that Ruth is called Ruth the Moabite. And then other times, the author calls her the Moabite. This was a big deal, that her identity was with the Moabite people. She was a foreigner, but not just any foreigner. She was from the Moabites. The people of Moab had, really, the origin of that nation was a perverted origin because it was incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters in Genesis 19. But not only did they have a perverted beginning, but they also had offensive behavior. And so the people of Moab were enemies of the people of Israel because when Israel traveled up after the exodus into the promised land, Moab didn't help them out. They didn't help them on their journey. And then they hired Balaam, the false prophet, to curse them. And so God had actually, he had stipulated in his word that no Moabite was to enter the community, his community, the Israelite community, God's people, up until the 10th generation. That was the condemnation that God had uttered over that nation, even to the 10th generation. We learned that in De Deuteronomy 23. Does this not emphasize even more to us the immense 
grace of God to see Ruth coming into Bethlehem and being redeemed, first of all, converting and accepting the one true God, Yahweh, and then being redeemed and adopted right into the people. This is the immense grace of God. And like Ruth, we were cursed, were we not? To the hundredth generation, we were lost. We were dead in trespasses and in sins. And God has done something that otherwise was unforeseen, that was improbable, impossible. God has redeemed us by the blood of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Ruth's origin points out to us even more the graciousness involved in what happened to her here with Boaz's kindness to her and ultimately her redemption. Now let's think together about Ruth's attitude. Ruth has an attitude in this chapter of humility and of thankfulness, doesn't she? And we read her words and, and her surprise at Boaz's kindness to her. Humility and thankfulness. Really, that should be the attitude we have too, isn't it? We should always have an attitude of humility and thankfulness as we respond to the heavenly Redeemer that we have, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just redeemed out of poverty physically and out of hunger and oppression physically like Ruth was, but the Lord Jesus has redeemed us from the oppression of sin and given us eternal life. It's not a good sign when my heart starts to get hard and unfeeling. I start to get proud. And the thankfulness isn't on the tip of my tongue the way it should be. Those are bad signs when that begins to happen to me. And I have to get back to my origins in sin. Wait a minute. I deserve nothing. I do not deserve salvation. I have salvation. I have eternal life. I have all that I have now because of the grace of God. We need to stay close to the cross, don't we, brothers and sisters? We should never graduate from the school of the cross. We should really always, at least figuratively speaking, be kneeling at the foot of the cross in humility and in thankfulness. And like the Apostle Paul, we should be saying, Far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Fanny Crosby wrote that hymn in 1869. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain. Free to all a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river. Verse 3 is beautiful as well. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadow o'er me. Let's stay near the cross, brothers and sisters. Let's have Ruth's attitude. Why are you showing kindness to me? I'm just a foreigner. That's a good attitude to have. And remember, we'll have a proper, humble view of ourselves if we keep focused on the redemption of God to us coming from the cross and the Lord Jesus. And also, we'll have an appropriate view of who God is 
in His holiness and in His love by staying focused on the cross. Works-based merit for salvation or trying to get points with God after salvation through our good works, that all goes out the window when we stay near the cross. We'll remember that we're accepted in Christ alone. We'll remember our peace and our security if we keep focused on the cross and the satisfaction that the Lord Jesus made for our salvation. The prosperity and the health and wealth gospels, those false gospels, they will be blasphemy to us if we stay focused, if we are at the foot of the cross. They will not even make sense hearing people preaching the gospel about people feeling good about themselves and no need for repentance and God just wants to make your life easy and all of this. No, all of those lies, they, they will not make sense to us if we are remembering what happened at the cross. We'll be preserved from communicating the gospel incorrectly. Our hearts will be full of gra gratitude. The posture of soul that we have as we serve God will not be one of guilt-based service, but love-based service for the man who died for us. Our relationships with other believers will be tempered by the fact that we are blood-bought and that they are blood-bought, and that we all belong to God and are so valuable to Him. If we remember Ruth's attitude and the attitude that we had in the moment of salvation and thanksgiving to the Lord Jesus for the cross, Ruth was so surprised at the kindness shown to her. So let's keep that in mind, that everything that we have, it's been given to us. And we have nothing to boast in except in the Lord Jesus himself. Brothers and sisters, let's think together about Ruth's worth for a moment. From the perspective of Boaz. Just notice with me a verse in chapter 3 and verse number 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. You are a worthy woman. In chapter 2, we already read the words of, of, of Boaz, how he was so impressed by Ruth's attitude in verses 10 and 12, and how that she had responded to the situation of her life and all that she had done to help Naomi. Boaz was pleased by what he saw in Ruth's initiative and in her character. He saw past the fact that she was a foreigner, and he saw the intrinsic value in her. He saw that she was created in the image of God, like all of the people of Israel, and that she had intrinsic value. I wonder what made Boaz come to this conclusion and why he had such a godly perspective on this. And one reason could have been that Boaz was a descendant of Rahab, the Gentile from Jericho, who converted to the one true God. And in the genealogies, Rahab is very close, or right beside Boaz. <clears throat> now, sometimes the genealogies skip generations, and as we look at the timeline in the Bible between Ruth and the time of Joshua, there was likely quite a bit of time there, perhaps 100 or 200 years. What we know for sure is that it was common practice for sometimes the Jewish genealogies to highlight the important segments of the genealogy as they were tracing history through the families. 
And so what we know for sure is that Boaz was a descendant of Rahab, and he likely would have known about Rahab. She would have had an impact upon him. And maybe her being a foreigner helped him see past the fact that Ruth was a foreigner and saw her value, saw that she was worthy. It's not so much that Ruth perhaps had earned the kindness that Boaz was giving to her, but he believed in her. He believed in her. He saw her intrinsic value. I'd like to think about that with you for a moment. In our own situation, we certainly have not earned our redemption. But the Lord Jesus believed we were worth redeeming. He believes in you and me. It's like someone walking through a junkyard and they see this wreck of a car. But the master, the master craftsman can see that vehicle and see the potential in the vehicle and decide, I am going to redeem that car. I'm going to take it from the rubble heap. I'm going to take it home. I am going to do the masterful work of creating a thing of beauty out of that wreck. I believe in the potential in that wreck. And then the master puts in what's necessary to take it from a wreck to a thing of beauty and a thing of honor. And who gets the glory for that? It's the master craftsman. That is our redemption over and over, isn't it? Dead in trespasses and in sins. Enslaved. Far from God. But the Lord Jesus saw us in our need. But he believed it was worth it to go to the cross, to suffer, to shed his blood so that we could be redeemed. And who gets the glory for our redemption? Not us. Not us. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the master. He is the one who has done everything to bring us into our position today. I can recall a snowmobile I had in high school. It was a 1979 Apollo. It was an ancient snowmobile. I didn't restore it, but uh, the uncle of my buddy restored it and took it from this ancient machine that didn't really run very well and was really beat up, and he put all this work into the 1979 Apollo until it was just this beautiful piece of snowmobile history, but also it was usable. And I bought it because I loved it, and it was better, it was more special to me than any of the new fancy snowmobiles that were around. I couldn't afford those ones anyway. But it's just beautiful, this redemption of something that was cast off, but the master craftsman comes in and redeems it. And that's what our Lord Jesus did, isn't it? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Lord Jesus knew what was ahead of him, but he believed it was worth it. God believed it was worth sending his son for us. And that is beautiful. I think that should inform our perspective on our fellow humanity too. That all of us were created in the image of God. There's intrinsic value there. God loves us enough that he would send his son to die for us. I think that should inform how we treat each other, despite our differences, despite the fact that we're all from different nations and all of different heritages on planet Earth. Let's just look now at Ruth's place of refuge, this last idea in this session. Look at verse number 12. <clears throat> Ruth chapter 2, verse number 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done, 
and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The God of Israel. You see this, this interplay in the chapter between Ruth being a foreigner and then coming into the Israelite community. God, the God of Israel, is now her shelter because of the graciousness of God. And we also, the one true God who is the God of Israel is now our God. He is our shelter. Psalm 91 is a really special psalm to my wife and I. It says in verse number one, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And then verse four, He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. In the care of God, in the care of the Redeemer, Ruth had everything she needed and more. It's incredible the kindness that she received, the graciousness of Boaz to her. If you start listening to it, it's just so impressive. He speaks to her kindly, admits her to, to his field, and allows her to glean. Okay, so he fulfilled the law in Leviticus 23. He's supposed to let the foreigners glean. But then he goes beyond. He promises her protection. No one's going to abuse you when you're on my field. And then he promises her water drawn by the young men in verse 9. Then he invites her to eat with his workers and with himself. And she ate until she was satisfied, and then he gave her the leftovers. This is graciousness. This is kindness. This is favor. Then he instructs the workers to literally pull handfuls of grain out on purpose from the sheaves and leave them for her. This is amazing kindness. This is going far beyond what was required of him. He allows her to glean among the sheaves, not just on the perimeter of the field. Ruth was so impressed by the kindness of Boaz. Is this not our situation, brothers and sisters? We haven't only been saved, and that is that, that phrase almost doesn't make sense because our salvation is so immense and it cost the Lord so much, but He has brought us into so, so much. Such a place of privilege, seated in the heavenly places in Christ, blessed with all spiritual blessings. We are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. I wonder if, brothers and sisters, we can just thrive on the roasted grain that we have in the Lord Jesus. Drink deeply the fresh water that we have in Christ. Enjoy the security that we have in the Lord Jesus, that nothing can touch us. We are under his care. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And there is a greater number with us than there are with the enemy. The security, the satisfaction, all that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ through redemption. But not only that, not only the kindness, not only the going far above and beyond, but in verse number 19 of chapter 2, it says, She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Not only did she receive kindness from Boaz, but she was considered his co-worker. That is a position that we have by God's grace today, too. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, it says there, the Apostle Paul says, we are God's fellow workers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, working together with him, speaking of with God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul refers to Timothy as God's co-worker in the gospel. Isn't it amazing that we are considered co-workers with God in his kingdom? Not only do we have the honor of being servants of Christ, but we are also considered co-workers with God. Co-workers with God. Ruth said, I worked today with Boaz. So we don't just have the security in the Lord Jesus. We don't just have the satisfaction of all of the kindnesses and blessing that he pours in, not just the freedom from oppression from our sins, but we have this purpose in life, this stabilizing truth that we exist to work for the honor of God with God. So brothers and sisters, let's be reminded of God's grace to us in our redemption as we look at Ruth's experience here in chapter 2. Let's bask in the favor of God. Let's not doubt his love. Let's not doubt our acceptance with him. We are accepted in the beloved. God, who believed we were worth redeeming, and it was his good pleasure to bring us into all of the blessings that we have in Christ, and now we have the privilege of serving him and being co-workers with him. God cherishes us. God has redeemed us. You are his. He made you. He redeemed you, and he has set you free.